Hey there, my name is Arthur Ettinger. Welcome to another episode of Close to the Vest. I am really lucky to have today um, the vocational expert, the employability expert, Rona Wexler. Rona, thanks so much for coming. It's a pleasure to be here, Arthur. It's good to see you. Likewise. It's been, uh, it's been a long time that we've actually <laughs> seen each other in person. A number of months, yes. So... Um, Rona, you are a constant lecturer. You are. You have written uh, tremendously. You um, are constant. You are the go-to employability expert. That's what they tell me. So, what is this? Is a huge topic mm -hmm. uh, in the matrimonial world, and I know your work is not limited to matrimonial family law. Um, can you just explain to the audience? What is an employability expert? So an expert, obviously, in my case, is not a lawyer. But the lawyers will retain me for my expertise. And my expertise is assessing someone's employment capabilities, which leads to how much they can earn, otherwise known as earning capacity. Sure. And from there, we look at the labor market as well to understand what would be available to that individual based on their skill set, prior experience, education, et cetera, to determine what the market will show that they can earn. And then we also frequently evaluate the diligence of a job search. We're often called in when somebody is uh, laid off, suddenly unemployed, underemployed, under-earning, and... You know, one of the questions that arises, is particularly from the other spouse is, or the other partner, is how come this happened so close to the divorce action? Right. Is it really true? I'm not sure. I don't believe it. And, um, or they used to earn so much more, and how come it's different now? You know, so those are the things that I would assess. So before we get into the nitty-gritty and the nuts and bolts, can you just uh, go into your background and how you got into this? Sure. So my background is somewhat different than many of the other experts that do this type of work. One of the defining characteristics is that I actually have real-world experience in the business world. So yes, I did career counseling, I directed a career services office in a college, but then I transitioned all of that into working for a Fortune 200 company in sales and sales management and consulting. And with that, I covered just about every business sector and government sector and somewhat nonprofit that you can think of. The difference for that, and then I got into executive recruiting. I was in partnership with um, another individual and my expertise was and focus was on business to business publishing although we did some sexier stuff too and that means that for almost every industry every type of work there is a publication out there about it so in order to educate my candidates about what this was I had to understand what that business was all about because that was really important to understand the audience all of this is layered and layered and layered to give me about three decades worth of experience that I bring to the table when I have to meet somebody and assess what their role has been, what they needed in terms of skills and knowledge to execute it. And that puts me way ahead of the game. I was just going to say that has to, the fact that you were a recruiter uh, in a prior lifetime has to have helped, must come into play uh, as a, uh, an employability expert. Without question. And in fact, <clears throat> I was in a, a trial recently, and there was an objection from the opposing counsel about my capabilities and qualifications to, ac you know, to interview somebody and know what I was doing. And the judge turned to me and asked me about my experience, which I went through, because I was also a hiring manager for some time. And you know, that objection was quickly overruled. So I know you testify regularly, so you're still being questioned on like a voir dire about your credentials? Well, sometimes they have to. And in fact, this particular attorney has retained me in prior cases. Sure. But remember, going to trial is a, a bit of a show. Right. And you have to show your client that you're doing everything you can. Sure. So um, 
and, and we're going to focus mainly on the matrimonial stuff, but if you can just touch upon, you know, other areas and why they, why someone would call upon Rona Wexler um, to do some type of employability valuation. So employability valuation that I do um, is in a few spheres. One, of course, and I got my start in family law, matrimonial. I also began um, getting cases. People found me or I was recommended uh, and spoke to various groups in employment litigation where I will conduct a similar type of um, evaluation with the same methodology. There's really no difference. And in that case, I could be retained by the employer's lawyer or the employee, the mm -hmm. defense or the plaintiff. Sure. And that's been helpful because it doesn't look like I take only one side. Right. The difference is that I have to be careful that everything I do is very consistent because anybody can look up my testimony, and they have, and query me about it. Sure. So now let's talk about um, the matrimonial aspect. Mm -hmm. um, why does somebody, and listen, we all know the answer, but someone out there who may just be embarking on a divorce um, is contemplating going through this, doesn't understand. You know, we hear over and over again, you know, I've been, we're, it's a 25-year marriage, and I've been telling her to go back to work, or oh, yeah. I've been telling him this and that, and, you know. Um, I've been patient, right. he hasn't done anything, all that kind of stuff. And so how, like, how does it come to be that you show up on the scene? Well, generally speaking, the lawyer contacts me. And as you know, Arthur, I'm very well known in the tri-state area. And as you mentioned before, I am a go-to. So a lot of times it's a lawyer doing your do his or her due diligence. They want to check this out with me. They want to see if what they have as facts or assumptions has some weight. And, you know, a lot of what I do is test those assumptions with them and that call. Sometimes it's just to make sure that they've investigated that approach and is it worthwhile. If I don't think I can add something to the value, any value to this case, if I think that they've got as much as they can, I will tell them, you know. And then they may bring in the client so that I can have a conversation with that person to let them know, hey, I know what you're thinking. I've heard this before, but this is what I see. You know, the person hasn't worked in X number of years or whatever, and whatever they were doing, it's not as valid anymore, whatever the case is. Sure. And I'll say, so you can pursue this path, but I'm telling you, it's, I don't see it happening. And I'll tell them why. That's interesting. So what would be a scenario where you would, someone would call you and then you say, listen, I can't really. Are you talking about a, maybe someone is claiming that their spouse is underemployed or some, and you, you're kicking the tires and say, you know what, they're not making more than 100000 if you want to retain me, and you better, you should accept you should that. And you should understand that from the get-go. If you're Got looking it. for more, um, so very often in that kind of case, the spouse, if not the lawyer, lawyers usually step back a little bit um, because they want to hear my side. They know it's imperative for me to be objective, otherwise there's no credibility for this case, and I certainly can't have it negatively impact me for future testimony. It's an ethical responsibility and a legal one. So I'll give you two examples. So one might be a stay-at-home parent who decided, ostensibly the couple agreed that that person would stay at home to care for the kids. Like you said, one party says, but I've been telling them to go back to work, et cetera, et cetera. But they haven't. And, you know, let's say they were in marketing 35 years ago. Well, marketing is very different. And let's say the person isn't very dig digitally sound mm -hmm. um, as far as marketing is concerned. And then I have to explain to this individual that if this person is in their mid to late 50s and they haven't done this before, their ability to go back to a kind of full-time role that they had before is pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. Uh, but doesn't mean they can't work, just means that we have to decide what is their capability now and what do they need to do to get there. It used to be that someone would come to me and generally 
most often a woman who stayed at home with the kids, and they had no computer skills, air quotes on that one. And now I can just say, do you use a smartphone? Okay, because using a smartphone intuitively is very similar to using a PC. So there's plenty of classes that are available online through adult ed, very inexpensive. You can also do extra work on YouTube and things of that nature and keep up with it. And you could be prepared to have those skills if you practice and you really focus on it within a few months at most, you know, but you have to commit to it. Or let's say it's an individual, one of my earliest cases was um, some, and that's, this is actually a good example. So it was an, a guy in his late 50s, right? And he had worked for a stand-up company in IT, and they had let him go. They really didn't need someone like him anymore. They were outsourcing, et cetera. He opens up his own IT shop, um, you know, computer repair, et cetera. Let's just say it didn't go well, and it wasn't going to go well. Mm-hmm. But he was comfortable in it. And so I get asked to evaluate him. I thought I had managed expectations pretty well, and I thought they figured that it would be okay. They had a number in mind. This happens quite a bit. And so I came back to them and said, uh, not going to happen. No one's going to hire a man at this age who's been out of the business for this long and doing this kind of work and hasn't even been successful doing that, barely making it you know, to any kind of modest profit. I just want to touch upon, because you said something, mm-hmm. you've said a lot in there that's really awesome, mm-hmm. managing expectations, which I'd love to get into, but you also said they had a number in mind, and I think it's really important for people to be listening. What you're referring to is a lot of times we'll come to you and we'll say, or the client, our client is saying, oh, he should be earning 250 he should be earning insert number here and so and and you're either dispelling that or you're confirming it or it could be that you know the the lawyer like you is doing calculations here's the cap this is how far apart they are this is what it means to us okay to come in with a certain number i mean i'll hear that but that can't be part of my decision sure so um i contact the um the lawyer and let her know what my thoughts were. And, and that was, this was one of my first cases. So she flipped out. She was like, this is a disaster for our case. Well, first of all, you don't say that. And second of all, it's like, that's not my problem. I mean, right. I'm trying to do something that can hold up in court. Sure. Okay? And that I feel is the right decision. Well, then the, the senior partner called me and was very aggressive and to this day, I can still see myself wearing a hole in my rug going back and forth because of all this nervous energy. And this is how it came out. I said, look, he has this capability. It's dated skills. It's a dated environment. It's just, he's just not hireable. You understand? He may have some skills. He can't be hired to do the kind of work you're thinking of. He's a poor candidate. And the lawyer said to me, I don't care if he can be hired. This is what he can do. I said, I don't think you understand what vocational evaluation is. It's your ability to be hired, a reasonable expectation. And he said, no, that's not what the law is. And I said, but I'm the expert in this matter, and I know what I have to to do. 36 hours later, I was told to stop working on the case. So they settled, right? They decided that they weren't going to fight it. But it is important to manage expectations. And one of the, on an initial call, if the client is not on the call, it's the lawyer making the inquiry. One of my questions sometime down the road is, well, what is your client expecting? What, it, what is he or she telling you? And if the number is really sky high or I just, you know, just what you've told me uh, doesn't indicate that, I said, I, I have serious doubts about that and I need more information. Sure. So managing expectations is a big one, yes. And sometimes I'm called in simply to do that, simply because the lawyer has been trying to tell the client that I'm not so sure if this can happen and bringing in a third opinion, a second opinion that is objective can be helpful to help them move it to, to a different level of decision-making. Well, listen, it's just like any other issue in a matrimonial that's uncertain. If you don't know the value 
of the marital residence, you got to get it appraised. Correct. You can keep arguing what the value is until, you know, until you get a number to throw in there. Similar, if you know, if if the big contention is the um, earning capacity of one of the parties, and you're gonna you're gonna push the case either to, you know, to resolution by trial or by uh, settlement because now they've heard it, um, and I think that's. I think that's very powerful, uh, even, if, even if my client doesn't like the result. Right. But it's important to know what the truth is. And the lawyers generally are, pretty, are, are fine with it. You know, it's, okay, now I know um, we need to consider another option. We need to take another direction. It's a client that, can, uh, that may have to overcome their disappointment. And you mentioned something else that was really important. I've testified, I've testified, I've, I've evaluated hundreds and hundreds of cases in my 20 years doing this. And yet I've only testified in matrimonial probably 65 times over that period of time. So most cases don't go to trial. Sure. And sometimes I'm at trial and I'm thinking, why am I here? It's so obvious. Well, it's because there's a whole lot of other issues in the trial that I know nothing about, but somehow we've got to get it all down. Emotions. People have to tell their story. That's right. They do. They have to feel heard. So talking about feeling heard and telling the story, explain the process on how, like, I know a lawyer get calls you. Is it for people out there, and listen, I have different, different opinions depending on the case, mm -hmm. okay? Sometimes I'm scrambling and I'm calling you uh, towards the tail end. Uh, and in other times, I'm calling you in the beginning. Sometimes we're just calling you because we want like a back of the envelope kind of answer in five minutes. Um, what do you believe, if there is a right answer, as to the, what the right time is to hire Rona Wexa? So I'm going to say this three times. Early, early, early. There is no charge to call me to get a, some sense of what I think this case might be about. So and when do you think should it be? <laughs> early, early, early. So let's say this is, this is an issue that is, is starting to surface. And it's well before discovery ends. And um, it's when you're starting to figure out what the strategy is going to be and some of the issues you need to address. I want to be called then. First of all, you're doing your due diligence. Mm -hmm. Second of all, you will know what my turnaround time could possibly be. And very often the lawyers, I can't tell you how many times I've been getting calls, especially now because people are so busy, <coughs> where they're doing that quick back of the envelope kind of thing. But they have no information. I have no idea. They don't really know what the person does. They haven't gotten a real resume yet. Um, there are all sorts of questions. All they're hearing is from the spouse. And that's not helpful. It's simply not helpful. So, but sometimes they're calling to say, we think we're going to need you. This person will never sit for an interview, okay? And my answer to that is, you have to ask. Mm -hmm. I've been at trial before where the, I was not, I was told that the person would never cooperate. And that came to bite me in the butt, so to speak, when I was on the stand. Two days in a row, I had the same objection. And I got off that stand and said, I will never do this again. You have to make the ask in writing. If they refuse, well, then the ball is in our court, and they are more on the defensive at sure. this point. But I have to know that I don't want somebody saying to me, you know, you never even asked. How do you know that person yeah, wouldn't have cooperated? Right. So it's very uncomfortable. And maybe I would have found something out that would have um, contradicted what was going on here. So... I so think that's the huge, I think that is the most important reason to get you involved er, earlier um, because you can be present during a deposition we, if there is an issue, if there's a, just like in any other discovery issue, um, we can raise it with the court and say, you know, we've retained uh, mm -hmm. Ms. Wexler and they're not presenting the counsel is not agreeing or what have you and the court will <coughs> certainly order the uh, the meeting or often they will sometimes they won't and that's okay and then if it's early enough 
and it's before deposition, I do help prepare deposition questions. And yes, I do like to be present or at least hear, you know, present um, on audio so that you'll take breaks. And then, for example, you may go down a path with some work that's way, it just doesn't really make <coughs> much difference to me. And I'll mean, get off of that. This is where we really need to focus. Time mm -hmm. is valuable, and this is what I really want to understand. Or they'll explain or not explain fully something during the deposition, and I want to dig deeper into that. The other thing I do early on is recommend what kinds of documents, you know, request what documents are important. So it's things like the Social Security earnings statement and right. tax returns. And it depends. The tax returns is really dependent on how complicated the – if they're in investment banking, then the tax returns become more important. I hope the lawyer doesn't need you to ask for the uh, tax returns. Oh, I don't. No, no. They have to get – all this stuff is for you to request. No, no. I'm, I was making a joke. Oh, okay. If they yeah. need to – you – to tell them to get tax returns is a bigger issue. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but sometimes they'll give me too much, you know, and then I have to tell them I don't really need all of this. Um, early, in one of my earliest cases, um, the lawyer had very smartly um, subpoenaed the person's personnel records. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting because the person had a marketing role in hospitality. I happened to have placed people in marketing. So during her interview, she was really diminishing her scope of responsibility, and it really didn't make sense. And I didn't believe her. But what was great was I had these personnel evaluations with her objectives and what her role was. Awesome. And, how she, and that's really, really helpful. I don't ask for it all the time because a lot of companies are very close to the vest about providing that kind of thing. I love it. But it is very helpful. Um, and then I'll create questions. I have standard questions and then more in-depth. Now, one thing I will tell you is I have a questionnaire that I developed some time ago. And it's been updated, and it needs to be updated again. But So one is for the, uh, the attorney to deliver with the request for the interview, and that's for the evaluated person to complete. A similar form is also given to the uh, spouse who's paying for this evaluation, mm -hmm. for them to fill out as best as they can. And that's really interesting. Some spouses know almost Zippo about what their spouse does, and others assume that they do and they're off track because when I look at the two firm f forms, I'll go, there's a big disconnect here. And then I have to rely on the person who's evaluating it. One of the things I don't want lawyers to do is many times they'll say, I know I didn't contact you earlier, big mistake, but I use your questionnaire, thinking that they knew everything that I was going to ask. Mm -hmm. This is a very <coughs> generic form. And I get very specific depending upon your role in industry and what I know I should be asking. So it's really insufficient. Some lawyers are much better at it than others. Right. And if they're good, I'm delighted. If they've seen what I've done before and the kind of questions I've asked or you know, I participated in another deposition, they know the direction I'm heading in. But if they don't, then I have a lot of incomplete information, and that's not helpful. And I'm assuming you, you need to reflect that in your report. If yes. If, the, if information is missing and I couldn't get a hold of it, I have to indicate that. A lot of times that can be from the person being evaluated who is not cooperative. You know, a lot of one-word answers. Right. You know, I can't recall, even in an interview. So now you're talking, like, a lot of what you're saying really relates to when you're hired by one side and you're sitting in the deposition. How does it change if you are coming in as a neutral? There's not that much of a change. The process is exactly <coughs> the same. The difference is, is that I have to be very careful not to have any ex parte communication. So everybody's copied in on everything, and then they have to respond. And so there's a lot more correspondence that's involved, which um, it, it's not that bad, but it is definitely more time consuming. Sure. An example of that is someone was asking to coordinate an interview, and um, they're insisting on it being in person. Because they're copying the referee, I'm agreeing to it, even though I explained why it's not a good idea. I think this person um, just needs to have that presence, okay? So this person keeps corresponding with me 
individually and really it has to be with all the parties right. and she's not getting that so I have to respond copying in everybody that's that's the harder part for that um, but once that's established and the lawyers keep to it then it's pretty easy going and the report and the process is exactly the same is there one way that you prefer or it, it is what it is it is what it is. I mean, the nice thing about a neutral is that hopefully the attorneys have both agreed to this. Usually they've come up with a name or a couple of names, and then I'm appointed. A lot of judges have known me, although there's a lot of changes in the bench these days, mm -hmm. and so that's not an issue. It's, it, look, it's easier to deal with just one side, right? Sure. You know, there's just less correspondence involved in things like that, but overall pretty good. And yet I have had a, number, a couple of lawyers where I'm, they agreed to have me as a neutral, didn't like the opinion, and still insisted on bringing in another expert. Well, listen, that's, you know, they're doing their job. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't take offense by it. Right. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Is there ever a situation where it's too late? You know, we just, we called you and it just, it can't happen. Yes. Okay. If you're calling me very close to trial and want me to produce a kind of report or maybe just an affidavit and testify to that, and it's just a few weeks away, I will decline. I'm too busy. Right now, my turnaround time is a minimum of eight as much as 10 or 11 weeks mm -hmm. from the time of the interview and getting all of the information I'm supposed to obtain. Um, I used to think that was way too long. Now I see that we're all so backed up that it's, it's not. But if you're calling me very close to trial, and you know, now I've learned to ask that question very early on. As soon as I do the conflict check, get the age of the person, you know, what, what, do you, what, what was the occupation or not, and what's your turnaround time? When do you need this by? And I just turned away a case recently, which was, yeah, and I know it's late, I'm really sorry. And sometimes they called me much earlier, but they thought they were close to settlement, mm -hmm. so they did not engage my services, wanted to save money. And I get it, because when you're in matrimonial litigation, it, you're hemorrhaging money, yeah. and it's very scary. But I, so now, I sorry. Oh no, so, so now sometimes what I do is, you know what, why don't we do this? Why don't I do the initial investigation, not even an interview, but at least do some research, get a sense of it, maybe even interview the person, especially if it's your client, okay, and be on the ready just in case it's necessary so that if, in fact, now we have to turn it around really quickly, a lot of the work has already been done. Sure. That's impossible. That's very hard to do if it's on the other side. You know, you talk, we were talking about when it's too late. I remember you and I had a case, and you were involved, and then you weren't involved. And then we were literally, we got to trial, mm -hmm. and they tried to offer up another person's expert's report. Mm -hmm. And we objected and got it thrown out. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even you. Um, and that was a huge, that was a huge issue in the case and it turned the uh, a, a lot of of what ended up happening at trial because the employability's expert the employability expert wasn't even allowed to testify yeah yeah that and and I can't recall that happening it's probably happened a couple of times but that's because there's a lot of other things going on it's not my testimony sure. it's it's based on the law and and I just got an email today where somebody wanted now to um, have me do the report and the other side is saying we agreed that discovery is closed I'm not permitting this mm -hmm. you know I'm not agreeing to it I don't think they're gonna I don't think it's gonna happen and so and I think that is the biggest takeaway mm -hmm. for people out there uh, that you, you you do you do engage the expert early enough so you don't run into that issue because that's that lawyer representing that individual better contact their malpractice carrier. You know, that's a major issue. Yeah, and also, by the way, when I say let's just get this started, <coughs> it's a smaller retainer. I'm just getting paid for a right. certain amount of work. If it, and if it evolves into something bigger, then you'll pay me more at the time. But if you want to save money and you want to just make sure your ducks are in a row, okay, that makes sense. I'm happy to do that too. Let's talk, that's a good issue to talk about because a lot of times a client will say, Oh, yeah, it sounds like a great idea, but I just really don't want to 
spend the money or maybe let's put it off. I don't really want to do that until I have to. How, how do you operate? Like, how do you get paid? Um, you don't need to say your exact fees, but just explain it to the individual out there wanting to know if they were to engage you or someone like you, mm-hmm. how it would work. Well, for me personally, because my relationship is pretty cut and dry. You know, I come in and I'm done. You know, unlike you where it's ongoing. Sure. So I get the... Um, the bulk of my retainer, almost all of it, up front, and I bill against that. And at, at this point in my career, I, I know what an average case is going to mm-hmm. bill, you know. And if there's money left over, I keep it aside and until I know if you're going to um, ask me to uh, testify. And in New Jersey and Connecticut, they do, um, I, can be, I can testify at depositions. And they, in Connecticut, they definitely use it on a regular basis. That's fine. Yeah, it is. Um, so, and usually they're not too, too long. Um, actually, employment litigation, they tend to be a full seven hours, and that's kind of tough. So, you know, that's a whole different mm-hmm. story. But, um, so that's how it's paid. And what I do is we will accept um, um, ACH, a direct deposit, Zelle, Venmo, and if, you really um, are cash short, and that happens quite a bit. What I try to do is say, okay, give me two or three checks. We'll break it up. I'm going to post-date them, and I'm going to tell you when we're going to deposit them so you are sure to have money in that account. And that will help your cash flow. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I don't mind doing that because I'll only work until the retainer anyhow. And then, for example, if you settle and I haven't used up the remaining point. Let's say there's a positive turn and you do decide to settle. Well, then you get a refund for the outstanding balance. Sure. That's unused. Mm-hmm. So when we, you know, we spoke very briefly um, the other day we went to, you know, to prep for this, and you said something, and I thought it was really profound, and I'd love for you to kind of just elaborate. You said you, can't, you cannot disregard your past to create a new chapter. Um, and I think there's, that is pretty profound in just the whole, on a high level, mm-hmm. in divorce and the dissolution of a marriage. But it also comes into play in the context of, you know, employability. Mm-hmm. So can you speak to, speak to that when you were talking about that yesterday? When people go through a divorce, and, you know, my husband went through a divorce, and, and I was with him during part of that time. And so I saw what it was like from that end, and then I've learned a lot from just, you know, seeing all the different sides. Divorce is an opportunity to um, try to find some closure, but there, closure is a long process, right? Especially if you have children, you are right. never fully divorced. You've got to consider that. So it's part of looking at what happened during your marriage, the choices that both of you made, and considering how that impacted this part of your life. One of the things I try to do um, with people who, I find a lot of people are stuck, right? They're stuck in the narrative. Um, There's a lot of anger and grief and blame and looking to blame. And sometimes not so great at taking a step back and looking at some accountability, you know, like a divorce doesn't happen by itself. Right. But that's also an opportunity to take those learnings and to create your next chapter. If you thought that you uh, allowed your other spouse to have too much um, financial responsibility and not you in your marriage, something that I always counsel women about, um, that's something for you to think about the next time and create a team around you. It doesn't mean you have to be fully literate, but you have to know that I'm accountable for my own money. Mm-hmm. Um, if you made a decision to stay at home with the children and now they're in high school and you're, you're, you think that you shouldn't have to go to work because I've been in this marriage for such a long period of time, yes. But, you know, you actually have another 17 or 18 years in a work life. And this is an opportunity to create something for you. For example, if it's a longer-term marriage, then you're entitled to some support. And they call it rehabilitative maintenance for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's to get you on your feet. 
we're not saying shoo-shoo, you're going to get to work right away, but you need some time to rethink what that is. I always recommend that people seek out a career job search advisor if they've been out of work for anything more than a year. Okay, if you couldn't find a job and it's not working for you, you need somebody to do a reset. If you aren't, can't, or won't be able, or no longer care to do what you did before because it's just so beyond your ken right now, well, let's see what you can do. And this could be an opportunity to go back to school, get trained for something else, um, follow some passion about volunteer work that you did. If you want to pursue life as an artist, that's not going to create any income necessarily. Well, I can indicate that that's your wish, but I'm not thinking that the court is going to agree that, that you're owed that. I think a lot of what happens is people who've been out of work in particular get stuck. You know, looking for work can be a very discouraging process, and it's a lonely process. And during COVID, it was even worse because you were so isolated. So I think it's very important to get somebody who can be a coach and an accountability partner for you and point out the things that you are diminishing that really are stronger than you think, as well as areas that might not be as realistic, mm -hmm. but that um, to, to actually feel empowered, okay? And there's a tendency, therefore, to get into this position where... <sighs> Sometimes I meet with people where there's a lot of, I shouldn't have to do this. This is unfair. Entitled. I did, right. It's not just entitled. There's definitely entitlement on some of that. And I don't want to create this, this um, I don't want to diminish what somebody's feelings are. But at a certain point, you need to understand, yeah, it may be, but this is what it is. Sure. And you've got a long, a good life ahead of you. Now, what are you going to do with it? You know, um, I mean, I've had people who are stay-at-home parents, and we talk about their schlepping. I call it the schlepping. And they um, will talk about carpooling, especially during COVID. But, you know, I would never let someone drive my child, okay? By the way, you live in Manhattan, and the school is only 20 blocks away. Why are you driving the kid to school? You know, I, I mean, that's my value system, and it's not theirs, but still... You have to start thinking outside the box because you created this identity around this other life. And that life was going to come to another chapter anyhow because kids grow up mm. and they move on. And your role in their lives change. Like, try getting a 20-year-old to come and see you, all right? So I think that's very important. And that's what I try to help people do during the interview, whether they retain me or they're on the other side. Sure. And that's that's kind of goes hand in hand with what you said before with managing expectations mm -hmm. and uh, matrimonial lawyers. I know I can speak for myself, and we all—that's a major responsibility. Yeah, and it's not that easy. You know, um, I deserve this, and I, mm -hmm. you know, and it's what nobody goes into this situation thinking, oh, this relationship's going to fail. But you have to be able to pivot, especially a lot of what you're going to say is probably going to be lost on a judge who hasn't had a raise in almost a decade <laughs> yes. and is inundated. Um, With this sense of entitlement. The other thing I've often explained is, um, so I have a cousin who's a lawyer, and I remember talking to her. I knew she was ready to have kids. Please don't step out entirely. And that is one piece of advice I give anybody who's thinking of taking care of the kids, the family, etc. Do not abandon your role entirely. Make sure that you're at least working part-time um, in that role and keeping your network alive, which means you just don't work for 9 to 3 and dash out. You've got to leave some time where you can do some socializing and building those relationships because you're going to need them. And she was, this was right after her wedding, so she was like, what are you talking about? Because she knew the work I did. I said, it's not about divorce. It's about anything that can happen in your life. You know, did I think my husband was going to develop Parkinson's disease and go through a whole different, you know, 10-year cycle that, you know, just kept going and going and going? No, but it was necessary. But I was really grateful that I kept working. Or let's say you have a special needs child, and now both of you need to earn more income and figure yeah. out how that's going to work. Life throws you a lot of curves. 
this is one of them. Divorce is one of them. And so because it's two people making this decision, maybe not always voluntarily, there's a tendency to look at how unfair it is and to assign blame. And you can do that, but um, then you're robbing your future of the promise that it can be, and it will be good if you make it so. And I'm not talking about, you know, the hostility and the financial pressures that will ensue, but sometimes life, you know, deals you a blow, just like someone who was in a great career and suddenly they're getting older and they get pushed out and now they can barely get an interview. That's unfair too, you know? You mentioned there's a bunch in there. Before I I move on, I want to touch upon some of the stuff you talked Mm -hmm. about, really big stuff. Um, Can you share, do you have like, are there, is there a case out there that sticks out in your mind it's, let's say, was one of the most challenging or it was the most bizarre fact pattern or you just really enjoyed working on it because you made a difference. Uh, is there uh, any of those stories that stick out and that you're willing to share? A couple of very different ones. So one is it's incredibly rewarding to be able to sit down in an interview without lawyers present, please, okay, because then I put them off camera and on, on silent, you know, on, on, on mute. Um, because I have an opportunity to develop some rapport with that person. So let me understand, because when I've engaged you, I've never, I, I've never been present. I just, that's not, but so there's... There are some people, sometimes it's the client. Got it. Or sometimes the lawyer says it is the client. <laughs> um, and... There could be a lot of reasons why they want to be present, okay? Even one of my favorite clients, they're all my favorites, but one of them I've, I've worked with for a long time, and we've become pretty chummy um, when I see her and stuff, it's, um, she always sits in. And I said, why are you doing that? You know me. Exactly. But I would never let my client sit in on one of these things with that. Okay. But she's very respectful about it. Um, so when I have the opportunity to actually have the conversation we just kind of alluded to, it's really quite rewarding to see that person's, because they don't know what to expect. They think it's going to be like a deposition. That's one of the reasons I don't like lawyers, even silently present, because um, it changes everything. And they get very present, as do I. And, you know, I just, I, I give, I said, one of the things I say is, look, you're in the middle of this mess and you're trying to sort it out. And you may not see this now. And it may not process now. But at some point when you come out the other side, you're going to have the next 18 years of your life ahead of you. And I hope you will consider, and this is the time to prepare for that. And I hope you'll consider it. And here are some people I can refer you to as coaches who can help you see through that. And it's, it's kind of cool to see them sort of relax and take it in. And I know they're not going to do that much in the next six months. They're too fraught with all the emotional stuff that's going through the door, too many questions. Mm-hmm. But at some point, they're going to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I tell them what I told you. Your kids are 15 and 16, you know, or 12 and 14, 16. And they're going to be emptying the nest soon. And I'm telling you, when you're raising kids, it goes just like that, mm. in a flash. So you just touched upon something that reminded me that I wanted to say before. So we often hear whether, no matter what side we're on, there's, you know, every client, or a lot of clients, let's just say, um, they get a lot of their legal advice from their other lawyers, the non-lawyers, the people oh, that their go out dr- their and drinking buddies yes. <laughs> or their lunch friends. Yes. You know, um, we jo- like the jailhouse lawyers, we joke, you know. And so you can't go get a job while this divorce is going on. Whatever you do, you have to shut that down. It's going to hurt you. Right. You don't know. What would you say to that? I recommend that they start the process of at least considering it and getting that advisory 
going because what they were doing before may not make sense now, may not be a viable market for it or their skill set's old. But I would strongly urge them to start looking for a really good professional career advisor job search coach. The career advisory comes first, particularly with someone who hasn't been um, working in any particular profession or occupation for some time. They need to check it out. I think it's very, very important. And look for alternatives. Um, I think that goes a long way in the courtroom. 100%. That, you know, how many times do you hear, I hear somebody say, Judge so-and-so said, there's no reason why you can't go back to work. And you can at least, and I'm not talking about work. What I get all the time is, What's the point of me going back to work? It costs more for childcare than I could make at Starbucks or, you know, some other retail establishment or something, frontline job. And I find that incredibly frustrating. So I take a deep breath and I say, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a longer road mm. and getting prepared for that. And the problem is, even if you go back to work, start part-time get your relationships in order, get your skills up to date. Let's do that. Even if it barely pays for your childcare, which hopefully your spouse will contribute, your soon-to-be ex-spouse, will contribute to as well because it's an investment in your future and getting you to be more independent financially. The longer you put it off, like I got to wait until the kids go to college, right. you know, the longer you put it off, now you're an older, you know, candidate, um, there's that many more years where you haven't worked at all, and the more difficult it is for you to get a job, and the harder and longer that job search will be. So get it started. And I think you'll be energized by it. It's going to open some doors you're not seeing, and that's the purpose of it. So I strongly disagree, and, and I do encourage, and I find many lawyers do encourage their. Yeah, I think, listen, anybody, you know. The last thing you want your client sitting in on a, your, is they're being deposed and their testimony while you're sitting next to them. Uh, I don't have a resume. I haven't sent out an email. No, I haven't spoken to a headhunter. You know, it's really... And, and this action started uh, when? Exactly. It's been nine months and right. you haven't done a thing. I actually... Um, and sometimes I've heard from someone say, in so many words, well, I'm waiting to see what's going to happen before I get started. Not a smart move. Right. And if you work part-time and get yourself into it, okay, so you've got more time to get going, you know, and plan. And what if it needs more education? Well, you need time to do that. And I also will tell them that your kids will see you in a different light. They'll see you taking charge of your life. I love that. Concentrating on something else. They will whine. They will pout a bit about how they have to take a little bit more responsibility at home now, but underneath it all, they get it. They're just supposed to do that. Sure. You know? Um, and I think it's important for them to hear that, that they need to see you as more than just a mom. And they're kind of wondering what you're going to do when they leave. I love that, yeah. You know? And also, those clients end up become less obsessive uh, about the divorce process and more accepting about um, the process as a whole and not as controlling, let's say, or um, easier to resolve issues now that they're able to focus on some other thing. On something else. Instead of feeling uh, out of control and, well, especially out of control, and that they now have to micromanage or they are just very worried about the outcome. Um, and you'd be surprised what they tell me, you know. I mean, I hear the whole story. Sure. And a couple of times I've heard, um, I mean, let's, let's, let's say it's a moneyed spouse, right, and, or the non-moneyed spouse. And I, and I know the moneyed spouse has quite a bit of money. I also know the moneyed spouse is really playing hardball especially if they're a lawyer in a big firm. But that's just a joke. Um, so, so what I need to help them see is that they're going to be okay, and now this is the time 
to think about what life will be like mm -hmm. going forward and, and plan for it and feel good about it. Look, I, I, you know, you could just do a whole thing with um, a lot of volunteer work, and mm -hmm. now you want to turn that into something where you could be paid for it, sure. rem, you know, remunerated for it. I am surprised how a stay-at-home parent sometimes, aside from being a class parent um, and, and taking the kids back and forth to school and soccer and traveling soccer or whatever it is, many of the people I see do almost no volunteer work, which I find surprising, and um, it's so antithetical to what I grew up with. I mean, I grew up with women in the late 50s and 60s era, you know, and they all poured all that energy and intelligence right. into doing something more, and then they went back to school. My mom did not because she didn't feel she had the time and the funds, and she was a little insecure about it. I think she regretted it to the day she passed, but she made a good life, and she, you know, became a junior accountant, and that was really kind of cool. And she loved being in the business world. Um, so I'm surprised that people don't do that more because it, it opens up your eyes to a lot of other things and new relationships that sure. you wouldn't have made otherwise. And in the meantime, you're making a contribution, no matter what the organization right. is. So I'm kind of sorry to see that isn't as dominant as I would have thought at one time. Sure. So you mentioned how life can throw you curves. Mm -hmm. And I've known you for a really long time. You were one of my earliest yeah. clients. And I know you've had a tough road. And um, I know you lost your husband and you lost your daughter. Can you speak to, and, and I know that's like the unimaginable, you know. And yeah. how has that does that impact how you go about your work as an expert? Um, hmm. um, I think one of the reasons I try to help people see beyond what's happening now is to, well, it's kind of what they say, life is for the living, right? So it's how you can create another life with different goals than what you started with 30, 40 years ago because you're a different person. Um, and to take what those people gave you in, in a lot of different ways. I mean, my husband and daughter passed away within three months of each other after long illnesses and very difficult ones. My kid sister died only um, about eight years before that. And, you know, we were extremely close. So um, one of the things I've learned is how not to catastrophize, how not to sweat the small stuff. It's all small stuff, but that's easy to say. I think the catastrophic thinking is really an important thing for people to look at. I used to tell my daughter when, you know, they're young and they get all kind of dramatic about certain stuff and it's like I, we turned to her and I said it's okay there's very little in life that can't be fixed we'll fix it and if we don't fix this we'll just make it better and you'll get you'll get through it now it's different when you go through four years of cancer and liver failure mm -hmm. but um, she got that you know it was very when you know she was well in particular that was an important lesson to think let's not Let's not think about all the stuff that can happen and might happen. Just stick with the now. That's, yeah. Um, I really admire you, and I know you are such a strong human being. Well, thank you. And um, I know you were really close with your husband. What do you tell, what would you say to somebody listening who may be on the fence going through uh you know contemplating going through a divorce uh do you have any words of wisdom 
Oh, gosh, that's a good one. Well, obviously what everybody says is communication, and that is very difficult when you started moving further apart from each other and kind of hiding in your corners or your other lives. I think um, going through counseling is, is helpful um, and hard work because it really means taking accountability for your own behavior, too. That's hard, especially... Um, you know, people talk to me a lot about this stuff because um, they know I, I do a lot of work in this world. And I'm thinking of an individual who found out his wife was unfaithful and was very, very remorseful. He just couldn't deal with it. And one of the complaints was that, and I've heard this from a few uh, people uh, professionally, is they worked very hard and they were away a lot. There was a lot of loneliness left behind. So you can accuse your spouse of um, all the bad things they did, and maybe a lot was them. But where was your communication? Where was your working on the relationship during this time? Um, so I think that's really important. I think trying mediation first is, very, is a good step. I know people have done so successfully. I'm called in on mediation and collaborative, mostly on a one-time basis, mostly as a, this is what I see the truth to be here, as far as I can see it, so that they can move on, right? Even, as we talked about before, the, the consulting that I'm involved with is to help people move forward, to know what they have to do, um, to think differently. And they may not make that decision right away. They may need to digest it, take some time. Um, as you and I both know, the divorce process litig litig and litigation can take a very long time. And people have unrealistic expectations about sure. that. And they get very frustrated, you know. Um, so I think those are really important things. And uh, look, when you go, th I mean, my husband and I were never going to get divorced. I know that. Um, and I was fortunate to be able to keep him at home during his illness as it progressed, and I was grateful for that. Um, but there was a bit of selfishness in that, too. Right. I knew if he went into um, a nursing home or even assisted living, first of all, it was not affordable, and second of all, uh, he would have declined very rapidly because his dad lived with us, and he had Alzheimer's, and so... You know, we saw what happened when he, he went in. And that still took 10 years. Um, and the other piece to it, very selfishly, was I had just started this business. And I was, you know, a few years before. And I was really into it and trying to grow it. And I had big medical bills for my daughter and stuff. I knew for the hours I was putting in, I would never make it to the, to the, to the home to see him enough. And I would feel very guilty about it. Sure. So it was easier, actually, f for me to keep him at home. It wasn't easy, but it was a better decision for me to keep him at home. And I'm still grateful that I did. So I've told you that I'm kind of going, starting, you know, my family has an issue. My mom has been yes. diagnosed, mm -hmm. you know, with the onset of dementia. Um, and for those people who out there who maybe are dealing with a loved one, how do you, what's your advice to those people who, to try to stay strong? And how did, how did you, because there's a lot of shitty days out there, and how, and you were running your business, a uh, successful business, and you got to keep your game face on. How, what do you say to those people to, to get, just forget running a business, just to fucking get out of bed in the morning? So, in 2008, my husband's very, you know, by 2007, things were kind of okay, but they were starting to decline. And finally, I got turned on to a support group at the JCC here in Manhattan, but there are many groups I also use support groups when my daughter had cancer. Um, I cannot say enough about them. Literally, I consider the Parkinson support group to save my life. Mm -hmm. We still get together to this day. Um, 
We were in it for two years, and then the social workers said, okay, little birdies, you're out of the nest. We need to make room for new people. And we didn't want to split. So we found a way. You know the hardest thing to do was to find free space in New York to do this. Wow. That was the most difficult. Without revealing how we did it, because they didn't want us to publicize it, we were able to do that, and we made contributions for the space because it was a nonprofit. And we continued, and gradually, one by one, each spouse passed on. Wow. One year, four. And um, we're going to get together next week. Again, we get together about three or four times a year. And they're like family. They're mm -hmm. like getting together with cousins, right? We shared everything from Parkinson's, for example, or in dementia, to you have a lot of intestinal issues. Your muscles aren't working properly. The brain isn't sending signals. And believe it or not, constipation is a big issue. I actually heard a doctor talk about that. People giggle. It's not funny when it's happening right. to you. And we would have like a session about, well, what do you do? What works for you? What do you think you should do? You know, you know what? That's proved to be very handy when my mom was in her last stages. And um, she didn't understand what was going on. And she was over-medicating for mm. that. And I had to talk to the aides and say, please don't do this. Right. You know, and you need to keep a running record, and we'll make adjustments. But the support group was also just great emotionally. And um, I also went to one when my father-in-law had Alzheimer's. And I'm sorry we stopped, because when he moved into a nursing home and he started going into a rapid decline, we had to make a very tough decision about whether or not to send him to the hospital. My gut told me, don't do it. He, doesn't, he shouldn't have a feeding tube. Um, but they kind of cornered us, and we didn't know what to do. So it was my husband's father, and he made that decision. And you know, when he went through a couple of stages where it looked like he was going to go, I was, I really felt it. It was, thank goodness, I had an in-home doctor. I want to give a shout out to the Mount Sinai Visiting Docs Program. They're really absolutely sensational. Um, and they, 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 they take Medicare. and. Um, straight Medicare. And then, um, so we did that. And then the hospice doctor came by two days back to back. Mm. I knew what needed to be done. I knew what his living will was. But you get this panic in, this, in your gut about, I, I, I can't explain it. It's like, it's here. And then his um, fabulous home health aide came back on duty and said, this ain't happening, and nursed him back to health. You know, and she did that twice. Wow. You know, and by the third time, um, she knew she, it, was too, it was way too late. And she came to visit because she was on vacay, and uh, he died a few days later. But she knew that, and I was, I think she wanted to be able to revive him again. And my feeling was, he's down to 75 pounds. Mm. It's time for him to let go. Wow. You know. So I would say get the support that you can, private therapy, um, I think groups can be enormously helpful. Um, you get creative. You make friends. I, I'm fully in support of that. And, and get some education. Sure. And advocate for your loved one. Mm. Sometimes um, the suggestions may not be in the best interest that you think for your, for your loved one. And I guess the other thing is please, please get a living will, advanced directives, and post them, and um, a durable power of attorney. Get mm -hmm. that really early on while there's still mentis comp compass mentis. That's really important. And I had a couple of aides who saw the DNR, you know. Mm -hmm. And by the way, revival with paddles and chest compressions for someone who's very frail is not a really great thing. And they were very religious, and they freaked out about it. And I just oh, wow. said, you know, I was like, um, I understand if this isn't if you're uncomfortable with this, and if you don't want to stay, there's no judgment here, I understand. Wow, yeah. But I know this is what's appropriate for my husband at this point. Mm. So um, just get support. Sure. Your friends will listen. It's just not the same as someone who's going through it. Well, that, that's really big stuff, and thank you for sharing. Sure. I really I admire you, and I respect you, and I may not always agree with your reports and I may not always be on your side of the table but I really 
um, I, I, I hold you in high regard, and um, so thank you. Thank you, um, and as do I for you. As I said, I've seen you grow and mature, and wow, it's kind of you're getting a little gray hair now, Arthur. More than little. <laughs> um, so my, I have my last question mm-hmm. for you. It's probably the hardest question. And so I'm a big sneaker guy. Yes. And so my question to you is, what's your favorite sneaker? Oh, goodness gracious. I'm pretty much a, um, an Asus gal. You know, okay. I stick to them. They've been a good shoe for me. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big sneaker person. I go to DSW to get well, my sneakers, you know. And, um you know, and, you know, I was at the Yale Club today for a luncheon, and, like, you're not allowed to wear sneakers there. And I was like, oh, geez, what am I going to wear now? And because uh, I just got used to doing Right, that, sure. You know. So what are your favorites? Those are pretty cool. Yeah, I'm a big uh, retro one guy. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, the first, mm-hmm. um, first editions. And so there's different... Definitely a lot of different colors out there that I like. but I am stunned um, at some of the guys' sneaker collections. It's crazy. I mean, they may be in a studio apartment, but they have a whole closet that is reserved. Millions of dollars. I'm not, yeah. That's not my collection. But, uh, and it's, but insane. It's Hundreds insane. and uh, thousands yeah. and thousands, if nothing else. And I think that's, uh, that's cool. But, you know, I've never been a big shopper, so <laughs> I just don't get into that that much. So let me ask you, before we wrap up, uh, for those out there that want to get in touch with you, mm-hmm. how can they reach out to you? So you can go to theemployabilityexpert.com or simply do vocational expert Rona Wexler in any type of search, and my website will come up. And I can also be reached at 646-335-5236. Again, that's 646 646- Three three five five two three six. Happy to take the call, have an introductory conversation, and if it seems like it needs more, we'll schedule something else. Perfect. Thanks so much. Me too. Thanks so much for having me. It's good talking with you. Awesome.